The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, may not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. 1 John 1, 9 teaches us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, we are already saved. Sin is not the issue other than it breaks our fellowship, grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit, and we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's important to use uh, 1 John 1, 9 to uh, recover so that we can continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for your word because it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is, it is the source of truth. It is in thy light that we see light, the psalmist said. So, Father, as we look at our own lives, as we look at the events going on around us in uh, history right now, we can look at them from a divine perspective because we have your thinking. Father, we pray for our nation at this time, for the ongoing uh, war against terrorism. We pray for clarity of thought for our president and for his advisors. We pray that they might not become distracted because of these other events that are taking place in Israel. We pray that they might continue to see even these events in light of the ongoing war against terrorism. Pray for this nation that they might continue to be steadfast. We pray that you would continue to watch over us and protect us, that even though there are many who are still in this nation who may be planning terrorist activities, we pray that you would frustrate their plans, give the uh, police forces the skills, the information they need to stop and frustrate and expose these individuals. Father, now as we study your word, we are reminded that just as the Corinthians uh, came to uh, Christianity with the baggage of their culture. We, too, come with the baggage of our culture. And too often these ideas are ideas that we hold with uh, some uh, fear of letting go, that we uh, hold on to these because we find them attractive and helpful and beneficial. Father, yet that is what the Scripture calls worldly thinking or cosmic thinking. 
And as we study your word, we pray that these things might be exposed in our own thinking and that we might have the objectivity and courage to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for divine viewpoint. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're, we'll start by way of review with verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Now, last time we looked at Acts chapter 17, and there we examined the situation of Paul's, uh, when Paul took the gospel to Athens and his uh, talk, his sermon on uh, Mars Hill, called Paul's Mars Hill Sermon on the Areopagus. And we did that in order to help us understand the mindset of the Greek culture that as Paul went to Athens, he was going up against the uh, most extreme form of the Greek thought and Greek culture, and that is the, uh, the one city that had been most impacted, although they all were, with the kind of human viewpoint thinking that came out of Greek uh, philosophical thought that really had its roots back in the 5th century B.C. And in Athens, we find that this is the one place where Paul has the least impact of the gospel, although there were some that responded, uh, the reaction on Mars Hill from the thinkers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, was that they laughed and mocked at Paul's claim that their human viewpoint house of cards was subject to the judgment of God and that it would eventually collapse. And it is that kind of thinking represented by the uh, Athenian intellectual community that is the arrogance of autonomous human reason. The issue here is not faith versus reason but faith that God-dependent reason versus autonomous reason. And that is really the issue. Too often we find the argument couched in terms of faith versus reason, and you get that almost always from either Christians who don't know any better or from because they have bought into the lie promoted by the opponent. And that is how the opponent in his debate strategy seeks to frame the argument is, is faith versus reason, and that that implies that faith somehow is not rational or is not subject to reason or is inherently illogical. But the issue in Scripture is never presented in terms of faith versus reason, but in terms of uh, dependent reason versus independent reason, because Christianity is inherently rational. In fact, it is more rational than the irrationalities of Darwinism, Marxism, Freudianism, and all of the other modern isms that are based ultimately on the thinking in uh, Greek culture. Because what we need to recognize is the kind of thinking that is characterizing the Greek culture and the problem that uh, and the human viewpoint that dominates the church here in Corinth is still around. It doesn't, didn't disappear just because that's ancient history. Don't look at this and say, well, that's, that's just the way they thought back then. Uh, that is still a predominant uh, way of thinking today. And we saw this prophesied in our study on Daniel on, uh, on Wednesday night. For example, in Daniel chapter 2, we have the statue of gold in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, I mean the statue that represents the kingdom of man. Now this statue is a flow chart of human history. It started with the head of gold, which represented the Babylonian empire, and then it proceeded through the uh, silver of the torso and the shoulders, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, 
and then we had the waist of brass, which represented the Greek Empire, then the legs of iron and the calves and feet of iron and clay, which represent Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire. Now, in that image, I pointed out that if you look at the... Um, if you look at the uh, analysis, the interpretation of the dream in Daniel chapter 2, what happened is that, that at the end of history, there is a stone that is cut without hands that knocks down the whole, the whole image. So that is one image that represents the kingdom of man, and there are elements in each one of these empires, from the Babylonian Empire to the Media Persian Empire to the Greek Empire, Roman Empire, that continue into the next empire so that they are all given a time uh, of extension in terms of their manifestation in human history. And that was reiterated in Daniel chapter 7, verse 12, where we had the vision of the four beasts. And at the conclusion of that, in Daniel 7:12, we read, there we're getting some sound over the speakers, um, we read, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them, for an appointed period of time. You can turn that down just a little bit now. Everybody can hear me quite well, and I'm barely speaking. Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of time was granted to them. And what that means is that each kingdom had, a di had its dominion, its time when it, was, it dominated history, taken away, but there is an extension of life given to it so that it has influences that continue beyond the life of the empire itself. And one element of Greek culture that has been given an extension of time down to the present is the impact of Greek philosophical thought. We still study uh, Plato and Aristotle, and in fact, the, uh, some philosophers, many philosophers, have made the observation that the history of philosophy has, since that time has been merely a footnote to Plato that Aristotle was a reaction to Plato, and everything else ever since then has been a reaction to Aristotle or a reaction to Plato and just further developments on the basic thinking that was developed during the 5th century B.C. Now, the Corinthians came out of that same culture, and that same culture has affected uh, academia down to the present time. So for 2,500 years, Greek thought has had an impact on Western culture. And the Corinthians, being good Greeks, thought like good Greeks, and they were uh, as impacted, they were as influenced by the kind of thinking that characterized Athens as any other Greek. And so this is one of the reasons that Paul has problems there and that the Corinthians continue to have problems. Now, one of the factors that I've mentioned that has this heavy influence on Greek mindset is the way they thought. The way they reasoned, the whole concept of philosophy, it had a uh, dominant thinking, and by this time we saw in Acts 17 the two dominant schools in Athens were the Epicureans and the Stoics. But before that, you can go back in history to the golden age of Athens in the 5th century B.C. where you have the pre-Socratic thinkers like Thales and Anaximander and Anaximenes, Pythagoras, Parmenides, and Heraclitus. They established the basis for thought that eventually Socrates built on. And Socrates, though, made a major shift in the approach to all thought, and Socrates was the teacher of Plato, who was the father of rationalism and idealism, and he was the teacher of Aristotle, who was the father of empiricism. 
Now, we've developed this chart in the past, and I'm going to drill this into your thinking so you can't forget it, because if you understand this, you can analyze almost any culture, almost any historical trend in history, because this summarizes what the issues are. Basic chart is the views of knowledge or systems of knowledge. There are four systems of knowledge. The top three we label the autonomous systems of perception, where man is trying to develop his understanding of reality independent of divine revelation. Man on his own, apart from God, apart from any input from God, is trying to organize all of the data that he knows and that he perceives and co somehow come to an ultimate understanding of reality. In contrast to that, we have the divine viewpoint, which is represented in Scripture. We call the top three human viewpoint systems, or sometimes just paganism. Paganism is a technical term for any thought that is contrary uh, to the Word of God. Uh, divine viewpoint is that viewpoint that is expressed in the Word of God. So we'll categorize this in terms of three columns. The left column is the name of the system. The second, second column or middle column elucidates the starting point of the system, and then the right column is their basic method. The first system is rationalism. This is the system of Plato. It's the system that was uh, articulated by Descartes in the uh, 17th century, and it is the idea that I can come on the, that, that man alone, apart from any input from divine revelation, can, through the use of reason alone, come to understand everything in the universe, even God. The starting point is somehow innate ideas, but the hidden presupposition that nobody talks about is faith in human ability, and in this sense it is faith in human reason, that ultimately human reason, unaided human reason, can pierce the mysteries of the universe and understand ultimate existence and ultimate reality. That's the hidden presupposition. So rationalism isn't pure reason. It starts with a hidden assumption that that reason is capable, and that is a faith statement. So its method then in development is the independent use of logic and reason, starting from a basic assumption that man can perceive and properly understand and interpret reality on the basis of reason alone. But that always breaks down because ultimately there are failures. Man can't do it. There are a number of critiques in Cartesianism, the thinking of Descartes, ultimately broke down, and in reaction there was empiricism. Just as Platonism broke down in the ancient world, there was a reaction, and that was in the empiricism of Aristotle. And the starting point in empiricism is the sense perceptions, external experience. This is the, uh, uh, the basis for the scientific method that man, through the use of the five senses, can what he sees, what he smells, what he touches, he can on the basis of that, come to an ultimate understanding of reality. Reason has its limitations, but experience is better. So this, again, is built on the same rigorous use of logic and reason. But note, empiricism has the same faulty faith as hidden faith assumption at its very core, uh, and that is faith in human ability to properly interpret the data. This is the fault of the, the problem with the evolutionist who goes out and has constructed an extremely complex system of analyzing fossils, and fossils are basically uh, going to be determined by the, the age of the fossils, determined by the strata that they're found in, but the dating of the strata is determined by the fossils that are found there. You notice the circularity of the argument. And, uh, but ultimately, it's based on an assumption that unaided 
human experience can lead man to absolute truth. Now, when rationalism and empiricism fail, the reaction in history is always mysticism. That happened in the ancient world. After the rationalism and empiricism of Plato and Aristotle debunked the religious system of the ancient Greeks, which we sort of laugh at scoffingly because that was the mythology of, the, of Olympus and the Greek gods, we think, well, that didn't have any reality anyway. But for them it did. At that generation... 7th, 8th, ninth century B.C., that was their ultimate reality and explanation of reality. When the new, quote, scientists, the thinkers, the philosophers of the day came along, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and they proved through reason that these gods couldn't exist, the people were left with no ultimate meaning. They're, they're left in a vacuum. Then when rationalism and empiricism break, breaks down, what are you left with? You're left with no ultimate explanation uh, of life, of meaning, of, of, of existence, of the purpose of mankind. And so instead of getting there by reason, you sort of leap to some sort of uh, explanation that, that you have to have to make sense because man created in the image of God uh, has something in his makeup where he knows that he is not meaningless, he is not purposeless, he is not just a product of, of time and chance. He can't live that way. So he has to leap to some sort of of um, explanation, and this comes through various uh, methodologies. The most ex most extreme would be what's evident in mystical religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, the mysticism that's present in the uh, in Judaism in the study of the Kabbalah, which is a very mystical uh, part of Judaism. And any kind of mystical religious experiences always open people to demonism and demon influence. But mysticism is bases its starting point on inner private experience that man intuitively can know truth. He just knows it. He just perceives it. He just it doesn't have anything to do with reason. It doesn't have anything to do with empiricism. He just he just knows. He just knows that this is this is God that he's had an experience with. He just knows that that this must be uh, ultimate reality. This must be this experience he has or this thought that he has, visions or dreams that he has must be what he thinks they are because he just he, he's intuitively, naturally capable of determining truth. So it's, again, based on faith in human ability. But the procedure, again, is independent, but it's a, it's a rejection of non-logical and non-rational and non-verifiable methodology. So the first two, rationalism and empiricism, are the basis for the independent use, uh, are, are, are built on the independent use of logic and reason, whereas mysticism rejects logic and reason. Now, if you can understand these three categories and how they impact a culture and how they impact the Corinthian culture, you can understand why this church is having the problems it has. At the beginning of this, of, of this epistle, we're going to have these divisions in the church, and the issue is really knowledge. See, see, we think of sin as only having a moral dimension, but in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, we discovered that, that sin has a... A, a epistemological dimension. That means it affects what we know and how we know. Sin destroys man's ability to have uh, true knowledge. He can know some things, but he can't know truth with a capital T because sin interferes. Now, the problem in the first three chapters has to do with the impact of the rationalistic and empirical elements of Greek thought in their culture. But as I said in, in the introduction, what happens historically in Greece is that in the 5th century through about the 2nd century B.C., you had the domination of either rationalism or empiricism in Greek thought. 
But then these systems begin to break down and people realize they don't really give the answers to the questions that people are asking about ultimate reality. Is there, is there a God? Is there eternal life? How do you know about this God? What's the meaning of human existence? What's the purpose of suffering? Ultimately, this system's broke down. And so in reaction, you always get mysticism. And so in the first and second centuries B.C., you have the rise of what was called the mystery religions. These mystery religions were based on... Um, certain revelations that were given, for example, through the Oracle of Delphi, who was a priestess to Apollo, and you have the, these various gods like Apollo and Dionysius, or also called Bacchus, who is the god of wine. And these, these uh, gods and goddesses are giving sort of special revelation, doesn't have anything to do with, um, with reason or logic, and it's, it's, um, it's uh, very experienced and emotion-oriented, and it's dominating the culture by the time you get into the first century. And so you have people in the church that are not only thinking in terms of rationalism and, and empiricism and judging the scripture from that framework, but you also have this crowd that's, that's whole religious experience is all of this emotionalism that went along with the mystical religious rites of uh, worshiping Dionysius and Apollo. And one of the elements there was speaking in ecstatic utterance as they worship the God. And so they bring that baggage with them into the church, and so that's one reason you have this tongues problem in Corinth, is because they're not understanding the biblical concept of the spiritual gift of speaking in languages. They're reinterpreting that within their past religious framework as just speaking in uh, ecstatic utterance, and so they see that as a sign of spirituality, which it isn't, never was, and never will be. And so you see that the whole problem from start to finish in Corinth is because they come to church, they come to Christianity, they have no understanding of any doctrine, obviously, but rather than submitting to the teaching of the Word of God, what they're doing is they're trying to reinterpret everything that Paul is teaching in light of their own religious or intellectual background. And the result is all the problems that we have in the church at Corinth. In contrast, we have divine viewpoint where God speaks authoritatively through objective revelation, uh, this revelation is always authenticated. It is not proved by experience. It's not proved by historical events. It is validated by historical events, and there's a difference between those two statements. And it is uh, the methodology of revelation is the dependent use of logic and reason. It is not against log uh, reason and logic, but it uses logic and reason in order to uh, understand, exegete, and analyze the passages of Scripture so that we can then derive uh, doctrinal principles uh, from them. Now, in the ancient world, and at the time of, of the Greek culture, the key element here is in rationalism and empiricism and the independent use of logic and reason, so that logic is a key element that is developed in Greek thought. And the Greeks developed a rigorous system of logic that operated as the rules for debate. So that by the time of the New Testament, this system of logic and debate had become an end in itself. So that this was one of the great forms of entertainment in the ancient world. They didn't have CDs, and they didn't have rock groups, and they didn't have television, and they didn't have, for all you news junkies, they didn't have Fox News and CNN and MSNBC or Rush Limbaugh to listen to. So what they would do is they would go down to the town square, and they would hear these debaters uh, square off against each other and it was intellectually stimulating, and it really didn't matter who was right or who was wrong. The issue was who had the better 
better oratorical skills, who could uh, sway the emotions of the audience better, and who could um, use language in a superior way. In other words, the emphasis was on rhetoric, the emphasis was on oratory, the issue was on style, but it wasn't on contact, content, and it didn't have anything to do with the positions that they articulated. The whole emphasis was just on how they used logic. Now, for Aristotle, logic was the foundation of knowledge, and logic was based on inference. Logic always um, logic evaluates inferences as to whether they are justified or not. For example, if you have a statement, I have a mother-in-law, that implies something. I have a mother-in-law, therefore I am married. That's a valid inference. However, if you have a statement, I have a brother-in-law, therefore I am married, the conclusion, I am married, the inference, I am married, does not necessarily follow from the statement, I have a brother-in-law. To have a mother-in-law, you have to be married. But you can have a brother-in-law who is, the, uh, who is the, the man married to your sister, and you might not be married. So logic, therefore, is the science of inference and whether or not conclusions are valid. And in the development of Greek thought, a school of thinkers arose in reaction to Plato during the second century B.C., who developed a set of arguments to show that no knowledge was possible. They were called skeptics. And that's always the flow in history. You have rationalism, empiricism, they fall apart, and there's a reaction to skepticism, and people can't live on the basis of skepticism, so they bail out into, into mysticism, and then there's usually some sort of cultural collapse, and the cycle starts all over again. And what was happening at the first century was this cultural collapse was taking place and there was something new on the scene and that was Christianity. So at the time that Paul comes to Corinth, there's this interplay and debate between the Aristotelians, the Platonists, the Stoics, and the Epicureans as to who is more important. And so the debaters would go to the town square and they would uh, debate one another uh, day after day and week after week. And this was the great uh, form of entertainment that was going on. And so as a result of this, various schools developed around these debaters. And what was important was who you identified yourself with. Not unlike people today who uh, gain their uh, sort of their personal prestige from following sports teams. They may be a Dallas Cowboy fan, or they may be an Oakland Raider fan, or they may be a New York Giants fan or Patriots fan. And they gain all of their... Um, uh, prestige from how their team is doing. And if their team's doing well, they're feeling good and life is great. And if their team's doing bad, well, there's not a whole lot to live for. And that's sort of the idea that happened in, in the ancient world. And that's why uh, in Corinth they brought that mentality into the church and they sort of uh, paired off in terms of personalities. And some people lined up with Peter and they were, others were aligning themselves with Apollos and others were aligning themselves with Paul. And that was the background here. It didn't have anything to do with doctrinal distinctions. It had to do with the way that people thought as they approached Christianity. And so the key issue that, that we have to understand is that that Greek cultural background of philosophy and, and rationalism and empiricism and the emphasis on logic and debate is what underlies, that's the background for understanding everything that's going on in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. So we will spend a good bit of time referring back to some of these concepts. Now, at the end of his opening introduction to this problem, Paul concludes with a statement in verse 17. He says, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Now, there's several things we have to note in terms of this verse, because this is a key verse that it forms the transition between the opening introduction of the problem of divisions, which started in verse 10, and the first point he makes in, in uh, dealing with this in verses 18 through 25. Now, he begins in the Greek with the, with the particle gar, which is translated for in your English. Now, this particle sometimes has a causal sense, but it's primarily an explanation. Paul is going to explain something, but I want you to notice something. And you ought to circle this in your Bibles and draw a line between these words just so later on you remember this. Verse 17 starts with a 4, verse 18 starts with a 4, and verse 19 starts with a 4. So Paul is going to start with one explanation, and that leads him to one thought. He starts with, he's been talking about baptism, and he is going to explain the significance of baptism, and that takes him to the cross, and immediately his mind goes to another thought, and he's going to explain the importance of the, of the cross in verse 18, and immediately when he goes from the cross, he ends up with the power of God, and this reminds him of another verse from the Old Testament that he's going to quote to substantiate his point, and so he goes there. Paul sometimes is, is very difficult to track in his thinking because his mind is so uh, nimble, he moves so quickly, that he just seems to flit and jump from one thought to the next. And in fact, he puts together some of the most complex sentences in, the, uh, in all of Scripture, and one of the things that we always had fun doing in seminary is trying to uh, diagram some of Paul's sentences. For example, Ephesians uh, 1, verse 3, down through verse uh, 14 is one sentence in the Greek, and he just piles one clause on top of another clause, and you have to just take out a whole you know, butcher block sheet of paper in order to try to diagram a sentence like that. And yet, if you're following his thinking, and as a role of a pastor is to explain these concepts and how they relate to each other, being able to do that is necessary in order to correctly follow somebody's thinking and what they're trying to communicate. And so Paul starts off here with this explanation. Now, let's, we've looked at this verse already, so let's get a corrected translation to begin with. For Christ did not commission me. That's the idea in the verb here. The verb is apostello, which is the, the verb form of the noun apostolos, and it means to, in this technical sense, to be commissioned as an apostle. And so we should translate it, Christ did not commission me as an apostle to baptize, that is, to immerse converts. That was not his primary mission, as we'll see. It is part of the secondary task, but not his primary mission. Christ did not commission me to immerse converts, but to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news, that is, not by means of clever oratory, in order that the cross of Christ and its significance should not be nullified. Now, I will repeat that again before we're done, but that will give you an idea of what this verse means as we analyze it. Paul begins in the second half of the verse with a negative. In the first half, he states his mission, which is to proclaim the gospel, and then in the second half, he is going to negate part of it, and that is the style. Style matters. I've said this last time. I'll reiterate it today. How you do what you do is as important as what you do. How you witness is as important as the fact of witnessing. You can witness in such a way that you uh, negate what you're trying to communicate because you're buying into human viewpoint techniques 
of uh, communication. That's what Paul's getting at here, is if you use uh, Greek style of rhetoric and oratory, then all of a sudden what happens is you become more concerned with how you're presenting the gospel, more concerned with style and structure, and more concerned with the logic of your arguments and trying to impress the crowd with how you're saying what you're saying, and that overrides the content of the gospel. He's emphasizing just the simple proclamation of the gospel. So we see from this that whatever cleverness of speech is, which I translated clever oratory, whatever that is, it nullifies the message of the cross. Now, it doesn't nullify the cross because nothing can nullify what Christ did on the cross, so the term cross of Christ must be understood as referring to the message of the cross of Christ. And so whatever our view of the cross of Christ is, we must understand that there are certain ways of proclaiming it that somehow nullify the message. Now, let's analyze some of the statements in this verse. Paul says, for Christ did not send me, and I've already mentioned that this is the uh, verb apostello, and here it's the aorist active indicative indicating his commission. He was sent on a mission. This is a formal commissioning that occurred in Acts chapter 9 when Paul was saved, when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. At that point, he is commissioned as an apostle and given a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That is his mission to primarily witness to the Gentiles. Now, Paul did a lot of other things along the way. Uh, so, obviously, witnessing is not an exclusive statement. So, when he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to uh, witness, uh, literally, it's witness. It's translated in the New American Standard, preach the gospel, but the verb here is the aorist active infinitive of euangelizo, which is the Greek word from which we get our word evangelism. Euangelizo, it is, uh, evangelism is just a transliteration of the Greek word, and it means to take good news somewhere, to announce good news, or to witness. So what Paul is saying here is Christ did not send me to immerse, baptism literally means to immerse, but to witness. That is his primary task, is to evangelize, to witness. But that did, was not at the exclusion of other things. For example, the Apostle Paul clearly did other things. He taught, that's the verb didasco, he taught line upon line, precept upon precept. He also witnessed, euangelizo. He spoke the truth, that's the verb laleo. He wrote the epistles, that's the verb graphe. He reasoned, in Acts 17.3 we read that he reasoned, dialegomai, in the synagogues by explaining what the Scripture said, opening up and presenting evidence from the Scripture that something was true. He defended the gospel, apologeo, which means to present a legal defense. He exhorted his readers, parakaleo. So here are only seven or eight different words, and yet what happens is we so often in our English distort the Scripture by reducing everything to this one concept of preaching. Notice how in the translation of the New American Standard, it's, the translator's done this. To preach the gospel is, an, of course, a correct way of talking about evangelism, but it's not a more precise translation. It should have been translated uh, to witness or to evangelize, and not simply to preach the gospel. This concept of preaching has a certain connotation in English that is not scriptural. 
It, it speaks more of a form than a function, and yet in the Scriptures the term preaching has to do more with function than form. What we see here is, is Paul uses several words in this passage to emphasize the communication that comes from the, um, from the pastor or from uh, the teacher. He uses the word logos in verse 18, for the logos of the cross, and there it's talking about message. He says the message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So right away the connection with the message of the cross to Uangalizo uh, in verse 17 indicates that the message is tied to witnessing. Then we skip down to uh, verse 21, and we'll see a different word tied in here. And when we get down to verse 20, 21, he uses the word message preached, which is the uh, Greek word kerugma, which has to do with the content of the announcement. And then in verse 23, he uses the verb form for we preach, which is keruso. So you have to tie these, these things together. When Keruso and Kerugma are the technical terms for preaching. What they literally mean is proclamation. And in almost every case in the New Testament where we find these, those words used, it is related in context to evangelism, to giving the content of the gospel. It is, preaching is not teaching in terms of Christian life, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, communication. Preaching is something that, in terms of biblical vocabulary, is what you do when you present the gospel. It is a proclamation, and that happens in a one-on-one -on -one context. It can happen in a context where it's one person speaking to a group. But in English, we've taken that concept of preaching, and we've loaded it with a completely different set of, uh, set of values. But, and that creates a tremendous amount of confusion when you try to read our cultural concept of preaching back into what is said in the New Testament. And if you do that, you're going to end up with a lot of confusion. Now in verse, let's get back to verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, that is, Christ did not commission me to immerse, but to witness. That is his primary task, to witness to the unbelievers. And he does this through the message of the cross, verse 18. He's not to do it through cleverness of speech. In other words, there are human viewpoint techniques of rhetoric and oratory, and that's not the issue. The issue isn't how you do it. The issue isn't the right turn of the phrase. The issue isn't all of the wonderful illustrations you use and the beautiful metaphors and word pictures that you manage to pull together. The issue is the content of the message, the clear articulation that Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single person in human history, that on the cross he paid the penalty for every single person in human history, and that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. So after bringing in the cross of Christ in verse 17, Paul then develops what he means by that in verse 18. Verse 18, he begins with the statement, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, again, he begins with the with for, which in Greek is the particle gar, indicating an explanation. And he says it's the word of the cross. Now, he uses that interesting word in Greek, logos, which is translated the word. 
Now, logos has a number of meanings. This is one of the broadest words in the Greek language. It means word. It means inward thought. It can mean what is said or spoken. It can mean language, talk, uh, saying, or statement. It can describe an assertion, a promise, a resolution, a condition, or a command. It can describe a, an entire speech, you know, not just one word, but the entire speech. Often we will use our English word that way. We might introduce a speaker and say, come give us a word. And we don't mean for him just to speak one word. We mean for him to uh, give a short oration. So it can refer to an entire discourse or conversation. It can refer to language. It can refer to a saying, a tale, a story, a narrative. It can refer to a proposition in technical, logical um, language. It can refer to a position, a principle. Logos can describe a thought. It can describe reason. It can mean an opinion. It can also mean a thing, a matter, an utterance. In the Bible, it is also translated by the words cause, communication, doctrine, intent, matter, mouth, and preaching. That's just to name a few. I'm not going to go on to all of them. There are numerous meanings to this word. So whenever we see the word logos, we have to pay close attention to the context to see what is being discussed. And what is being discussed here is the content of the message. So we should translate it here, not just the word of the cross, that's too generic. We should translate it the message of the cross. And the message of the cross is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was crucified on the cross. The focal point here is the cross. What happened on the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sins of every single human being in history. The message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And here we have uh, the present uh, middle participle of apolumi, which means to uh, destroy, which means to perish, to be uh, punished. It is the idea of those who have rejected the gospel and who are destined for eternity in the lake of fire. And the present participle indicates that they are in the process uh, of perishing. They are on the path to eternal destruction. And this uh, participle is used in conjunction with the verb uh, ami, which means it is a paraphrastic participle, and that emphasizes a state of being. So we can derive from that that the message is to those who are in the state of being perishing. Now, that is a <clears throat> dative clause here, so it should be translated, uh, the word of the cross is to those who are in the state, who are with reference to those who are in a state of perishing. It is a dative of reference. With reference to those who are in the state of existence of perishing, it is foolishness. And here we have the Greek word uh, moria, which is where we get our English word moron. So what Paul is classifying here is that those who reject the cross are, biblically speaking, morons. That's not my word. That's the Holy Spirit's word. They are fools. The psalmist said the same thing in the Old Testament. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. See, God is not, fortunately, God is not afflicted with the modern problem of being politically correct. They are fools. The message of the cross is to, with reference to those who have rejected the gospel and are on the path to perdition, the path to the lake of fire, but contrast, it is to us who are being saved 
That is the same kind of construction. It is with reference to us who are in the state of being saved, the state of existence of being saved. It is the power of God. Now, why is the gospel foolish to the unbeliever? First of all, it is foolish because man rejects the problem. He rejects the divine analysis of what the problem is, and that is sin. Modern man does not see that man is inherently evil. He thinks that man is basically good. So if man is basically good, he doesn't need a salvation or a savior. He just needs to be cured. He's, he's not dead. He's just kind of sick or ill. But man is basically good, so the solution is rehabilitation, not conversion. The second reason the gospel is foolishness is because the mechanics of divine salvation, that is the new birth, regeneration, are not open to empirical investigation. The scientist in the, in the uh, laboratory is not able to open up your, your skull and find your soul and determine what spiritual death is. So the mechanics of divine salvation, the movement from spiritual death to spiritual life, the, the mechanics are not open to empirical investigation. The mechanics of divine justice, furthermore, do not fit human preconceptions of justice. A third reason that it's foolish is that modern man presupposes that God has not objectively revealed himself. The thinking of modern man, that they, they don't pull it out into the light of day, but the hidden assumption that's lurking back in the shadows of their mind is that God really hasn't spoken and God really hasn't communicated himself. So uh, here we have is, is, uh, Muslims who make uh, the claims of Islam that the God, is, God is Allah. We have Buddhists who make their claims. You have Hindus who make their claims. You have Mormons who make their claims. Everybody's got a God. Who are you to say that your God is the only God? How do you know? See, once again, we get back to the basic problem of knowledge. And modern man just basically looks at all this and says, you can't really know, so obviously God hasn't revealed himself. And what lies back of that is the idea that if God is going to reveal himself, he's going to reveal himself in such a way that modern man is going to be convinced that he exists. But what can be more convincing than the way God revealed himself in the incarnation with the Lord Jesus Christ, they even had the sign of the resurrection, and yet Jews rejected that. And we're going to get into that in this very passage. The Jews were seeking for a sign, and they had the greatest of all signs, and it still didn't matter because the issue isn't a problem of the intellect. It's the problem of belief. And the fourth reason that it is foolish is because the way of dealing with the sin problem, which is through the criminal punishment of crucifixion, that Jesus Christ, who was without sin, was punished like, a, like the lowest form of criminal possible just doesn't make sense that somehow I'm too good to be saved by some person who just died as a low-life criminal in Judea. And so man who thinks much of himself does not uh, believe that his salvation rests upon the work of, of uh, a criminal death. So modern man and even ancient man looks at the cross as being foolishness. It doesn't fit his preconceptions. So Paul says the message of the cross is with reference to those who are on the path to eternal condemnation, foolishness. But with reference to uh, us who are in the process of being saved, it is the power of God. Notice his emphasis here is on the power of God. He doesn't say the message is the truth. See, that's what most of us would articulate this. We would say the gospel is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. So it would be natural for us to expect Paul to say it's the truth of God, but the problem is he is addressing this Greek audience 
and for them, truth is a debatable concept because of their philosophical background. It's a major issue in their discussion, so he's going to sidestep that by emphasizing the fact of its power. And power here is something that is dynamic. It has action. Now, we have to define what power is because too often we think of power in terms of strength or force. But this is not power in the concept of strength or force. It is power in the concept of ability, a special competence to produce uh, certain results and to perform a certain function. So what Paul is saying here is the gospel it makes it possible and is the ability of God to move men from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual condemnation to, to an eternity in heaven. So we should translate the verse, because the message of the cross is to those who are lost foolishness, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. And now that concept brings to his mind an Old Testament quote from Isaiah chapter 29 that is important for understanding the, the background of Greek thought. So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And this last word here, set aside, is the future active indicative of the Greek verb atheteo, which means to nullify, to declare invalid, or to set aside. Now, notice how Paul uses this terminology. He's, God is going to nullify the cleverness of the clever, but if you use the gospel in cleverness, you nullify the message. See, Paul's full of these little word plays, and you just miss that in the English. So every now and then I have to throw that out so you realize what a great writer Paul was. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 9, let's pick up a little context. Isaiah says, Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. This is the problem of the human viewpoint thinking of the false teachers at the time of Isaiah. These were the false prophets. They were blinding themselves with their own emotion and their own desires rather than, and, and their rejection of the Word of God. Uh, when you reject the Word of God, you blind yourselves, and the result is spiritual blindness. And when you're spiritually blind, you can't really perceive what the real issues and problems are in life. So the, Isaiah says, blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk. That's the false teachers, but not with wine. You see, uh, man's, man becomes drunk on his own arrogance and his own pride, thinking he knows the uh, solutions to everything. And he says, in reference to these false teachers, they stagger, but not with strong drink. See, if you want to do a little background study on this when you get home, you can look at 2 Kings 18, verse 17 through 1937. It's the background to Isaiah 29. Isaiah is preaching to these, against these false prophets in Jerusalem. Isaiah was not merely a prophet. He was also a businessman in the, in, uh, the ancient world, and he served as a, sort of a floating advisor to the king um, in Judah. And as an advisor or counselor to the king, he would often make points from a divine viewpoint and, and bring a uh, revelation of prophecy from God to the king, which was often rejected and usually rejected by all of his other uh, advisors. At this particular time in history, he's trying to get the leaders to make some good decisions related to the Assyrian invasion. That is, Sennacherib is on his way. He's destroyed the northern kingdom. He's on the way to the southern kingdom. They're trying to, and, and what's happening is that the southern kingdom is trying to solve their problem by 
going into an alliance with other rulers. See, man always tries to solve his problems apart from exclusive reliance upon God. The only problem was that the Jews were called to build an exclusive kingdom based upon the word of God and exclusively relying upon God and not trying to solve their problems by relying upon other men or other kingdoms. So instead of trusting God, they acted just like unbelievers today, and they looked to the gimmicks. They looked to man to solve their problems, but man is always weak. So Isaiah brings a judgment against him. In verse 10, we go on to read, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. Because they are negative volition, God then judges them by making them more spiritually dense. Isaiah says, He, that is God, has shut your eyes, uh, the prophets. That means he's not giving revelation. And he has covered your heads, the seers. Verse 11, And the entire vision shall be to you like the words of a sealed book. In other words, you may hear what the prophet says, but you can't understand it. Uh, which, when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, Please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, Please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Verse 13, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. This is like most Christians who go to church, but they don't do anything with whatever it is they learn. Uh, but they remove their hearts far from me. They have external obedience and they have a semblance of positive volition, but there's no real uh, devotion to God. There's no real intensity to learn the Word of God, no passion to make doctrine the number one thing in their lives. And then we come to verse 14. This is the judgment. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with these people, uh, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. That is, the human viewpoint wisdom shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Now, Paul changes this last word, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, to the word hide. And uh, his emphasis there is that, uh, or, or to the word nullify from hide, that the cleverness of the clever will not simply be set aside, or not simply be hidden, but it will be set aside. God will eventually nullify all human viewpoint thinking. Then in verse 20, Paul uses a rhetorical device of, uh, of three questions in order to focus the issue. He says, where is the wise man, where is the scribe, and where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, the first three questions form an outline for the rest of this chapter and chapter 2. The first question is, where is the wise man? This is the sophos. This is the philosopher of the day. He says, where is the philosopher? And he answers this question in verses 21 through 29. The second question he asks is, where is the scribe? Where is the grammateus? And this is a reference to a class of Jewish religious leaders. Among the Pharisees, there was a special class called the scribes. And the scribes were those who had not only memorized all 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law, but they had also memorized all of the uh, hundreds and thousands of other commandments that the uh, Jewish uh, religious leaders had uh, developed during the intertestamental period. So they were a special class of Pharisee. And so whenever you read a scribe in the New Testament, I'll almost always think in terms of legalism. So where is the philosopher? Where is the religious leader or the legalist? And, then the, and that question is answered in chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And then the third question, where is the debater of this age? And that is the uh, Suzetetes, who was a disputer or debater who made a, 
who was continuously performing as an, uh, in public, uh, entertaining through his debating style. And he says, where is the debater of this age? And that question is answered in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. So these three questions at the beginning of verse 20 outline uh, his discussion from 121 down through the end of chapter 2. And then he's going to make one other statement. Has Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And that is his theme and the answer to all three of these questions. And that is the divine viewpoint renders foolish the wisdom of the world. So you can add up all the thinking of all the human viewpoint philosophers from Aristotle down to the present, and God says it's all foolishness because they've rejected the right starting point, and the right starting point is the existence of God and his revelation in Scripture. And we'll come back and look at how Paul answers those questions starting in verse 21 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to be encouraged by the veracity of your word because it comes from your your person, your character, and that you have perfect integrity. And so everything that you say, everything that you reveal is also perfect and without error. Father, we thank you that your wisdom is absolute wisdom and it it puts to shame the so-called wisdom of our age, the so-called wisdom of the intellectuals and the pseudo-scholars who have uh, rejected you, and that they are in fact fools despite the fact that they might have high IQs and, and many academic credentials. Father, we thank you that our salvation is based on a message that is so simple that anyone can understand it, yet it is so profound that many people stumble over it, and that is the message of the cross, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that by simply accepting his payment in our place, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that sure and certain right now. All you have to do right where you sit is to accept this free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is made clear. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, that we may be encouraged by the fact that we believe the absolute truth that has been revealed by the eternal God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.